and welcome to Coffee with Cornelius. In this episode, we will be talking about the economic response to COVID-19 in Canada, and we will be hearing from a former NDP chief economist, Rob Gilezo. Professor Gilezo is from Ontario. He has a bachelor's degree from McMaster University and a master's and PhD in economics from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He worked as the chief economist for the NDP under Tom Mulcair and was also a senior aide to the Minister of Finance and Deputy Premier of British Columbia. Rob is currently an assistant professor of economics at the University of Victoria, and his research focuses on African-American protests and police killings of civilians, as well as the economics of North America's indigenous peoples. Rob, thanks for joining us. Oh, my absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Rob, you have a background in both policy and academia. So could you please tell us a little bit about your background, including your work at the NDP and how it has affected your research trajectory and your work as a professor now? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question, but I'm more than happy to talk about it. Uh, you know, I, I was uh, pretty standard for a lot of economists. I did my undergrad. I was really conflicted initially between doing physics and history. Uh, so I bought time by going uh, to the Earth and Science program at McMaster so I could delay my decision. Uh, and then I kind of analytically said, you know, heck, I'm going to just try economics. Uh, it feels somewhere in the middle of what I like uh, and, and just hit it off. Uh, so I went straight from there to do my PhD at Michigan. Uh, and, you know, I was, on, I was on a fairly standard academic track. Uh, you know, I, I had my, I had what ended up being my job market paper after about two years. I was on the go, but I was active in my community. I was, uh, I ended up being the president of the union uh, at Michigan. Uh, and ironically, like, not ironically, uh, very much what shaped my path uh, was uh, we had a, we had a union drive for the research assistants. And it caused you to get ugly. You know, you tend to think mm. that universities are, are progressive places, and, and they are, but they're also just standard employers, right? So when yeah. you have a union drive, they, they tend to fight it. And it got quite ugly. Uh, I actually ended up losing my first advisor over it. Uh, and so I needed a break. Uh, and so, you know, um, that break happened to line up with the 2011 election. Uh, and the New Democrats formed the official opposition for the first time in, in their history. And I, I've been an NDP voter since I was... I don't know, 18 or 19. Uh, and so I decided, okay, uh, you know, let, let's see if I can help. Uh, and they offered me a job and I went up and did that for four and a half years. And then I got another advisor, finished and went back to academia. Uh, so they just offered you a job as chief economist. That's impressive. Well, I, I started off kind of in the research shop uh, mm -hmm. and then it turned out that I, I was good at it. Uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, economists, our, our way of thinking, optimization, you know, our ability to optimize can give us a type of strategic mindset uh, that can be very successful in politics. Mm -hmm. You know, some economists really don't fit, right? If you are a, a little bit too dogmatic, uh, if, you, if you don't really kind of realize all the constraints that you're within, then it can be difficult. But right, as, as long as you go into politics as an economist, understanding that we're thinking about oftentimes the world of the second best, where you have this not just budget constraint, but you have this kind of policy space constraint, political constraint, then you can really thrive. Uh, so I did four and a half years there, went back to academia, and then you know was publishing away, getting getting you know getting back to it, uh, and then I was offered a, a role in the BCNDP government here quite unexpectedly, uh, and it wasn't a role that I felt like I could say no to. Uh, you know how does it influence my my research? Uh, 
I, on one hand, I try to keep them very separate, right? Uh, because you know, I when I when I'm when I'm in the political space, I'm doing active present-day policy. When I'm doing research, I'm, I'm primarily an economic historian, uh, and to some degree, that's purposeful because I never want there to be a conflict uh, between mm, my politics right. and research. Uh, but you know, it, it gives this when when you get when you've been in the decision-making rooms, when you've been in the debate. It gives you some sense as to pragmatically, right? How how did different policies arise? Uh, why are we in some of the jams are at? And how do you frame your results uh, in a way that is, are actually going to be useful uh, to a policymaker? So so certainly that you know, especially on my work on in, on indigenous peoples, uh, that continues to play out. Uh, right, yeah. and it, does it help with your teaching too? I imagine it does. I imagine students are fascinated that you uh, have some policy experience, right? That we're not just looking at a blackboard. Yeah, uh, and it, it is central to how I teach. I teach mm -hmm. the fourth-year uh, uh, economic policy class uh, at UVic, uh, and it's funny when I first arrived, I had only ever had experience in opposition. So I very much taught, you know, a fusion of apply, applied uh, economics uh, to public policy issues, but then also real real things that would matter if you were going to go and maybe be a civil servant, right? So how the treasury board process works. Uh, you know, what are all the different reports that are put out? Uh, what is the role of the auditor general? Uh, and I very much had a, a critical view there. And then when I was able to go back and teach after my time in government, right, I could talk about how do you actually make a budget? Mm -hmm. You know, behind the scenes, obviously you can't go into details about any individual decisions, but when do they start working on it? How, you know, how, do, how does this go through different departments? How does it go through the treasury board? And where does economics fit into that process? Uh, and you know, living in a government town, a large share of our students are going to go and become civil servants. So it, yeah, it's been enormously helpful. And then even teaching economic history, uh, you know, so so many uh, people writing in the area now are, are writing on historical policy uh, and how it can be relevant to today. Uh, so applying that political and policy lens, natural fit. Yeah, especially during the time of COVID, there are a lot of COVID-19 related policy papers. I'd like to ask, though, what unique skills does an economist bring to the policymaking table? As a profession, what do we bring uniquely to policymaking? Yeah, we bring a whole bunch of different things. Like one, mm -hmm. I'll just say, economists are, are a bit of a, a unique breed, right? We have a different worldview and a different approach uh, than, almost, than folks with almost any other training. Uh, and so regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, you're gonna tend to be an outlier. Uh, in that policy space, uh, right? If, if you're on the left, if you're on the right, uh, you're always going to be a little bit different. Uh, practically, where do I see value? And it's concepts that just, they seem so obvious, uh, but they're often ignored in policymaking. Uh, so opportunity cost and marginalism, right? Uh, these things. So seem... econ 101 concepts, first year economics concepts. Yeah. And it seems really, really silly. Uh, and you know, I would say more often than not, the bureaucracy deals with opportunity costs reasonably, but not always well. Uh, but the principle of marginalism, right? So thinking about you know, you you change, you you add one more, what changes? Uh, that is often absent. Uh, for example, where 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 do you see this? I would say more often than not, when the civil service or someone, if you're in opposition in the policy shop, when they when they generate a new policy, if they're not an economist it's gonna have a short break, right? So you're gonna go along and say you have a benefit for low-income people, it's gonna be you get a thousand bucks and then you uh, hit, I don't know, an income of 10,000 and you earn one more and it drops to zero. Uh, I would say a good, I don't know, 80% of policies I've ever been handed to me 
have had that type of sharp break. And mm -hmm. as economists, we know, right, that's often really, really bad uh, with respect to incentives. Uh, and it creates inefficiencies in the system. Uh, and so it seems silly, but like just thinking about marginalism is so helpful. Beyond those sharp breaks, uh, an economist can also help think about uh, the policy environment in aggregate. Right? So even if you think about marginal, marginal rate, for example, with a tax or a benefit, uh, people are often going to forget how it interlays with all of the existing uh, tax, taxes and benefits in the system. And so you might end up with a, an, an aggregate marginal effective rate structure that looks, again, very, very different. Mm -hmm. So economists are able to add so much uh, into that discussion. And you know, how, how can economists, I think, be successful Right. Uh, oftentimes, we we're going to want the best policy, and as economists, we certainly have an obligation uh, to present that best policy. Right. We always want to put that forward, but politics and policymaking uh, is often a world of the second best. Right. Uh, there are oftentimes a million constraints that stop sure. us from getting to where we want to go. That can be political, but you know, something that I would say I learned during my time in government was can also it can it can often be administrative. Uh, and administrative challenges are real, right? Those are real constraints that can stop us from getting to the best solution. So once economists start thinking within those constraints, we can help optimize to what might, to an outside economist, not seem like the best solution, but in practice is the best solution. So right? uh, if I can ask you about this marginalism concept, right? Because some of my viewers, this might be foreign to them. So let's talk about some of the COVID-19 policies that are put in place, right? So some of the COVID-19 policies basically have a cutoff. If you're below a certain income, you get a subsidy. Would this be, I suppose, a place that marginalism can actually inform policy? Yeah, I, like definitely. Uh, and I'll say with the COVID-19 policy, what, what's really interesting is, right, normally with a type of benefit like the CERB, right, why do we not want a sharp cutoff we don't want a sharp cutoff because it'll discourage work, mm -hmm. right? That's typically the reason. But in this case, right, the federal government quite correctly wanted to discourage work, uh, right? For the when they wanted sure, everyone yeah. to be at home, social uh, so distancing. In this case, they they yeah. put in this sharp break. They put in this, uh, you know, economists call it a discontinuity. They put it in because that what is normally a downside is actually a positive here. Uh, now the tension is going to be right as as we begin to reopen. Uh, we don't necessarily want to keep people at home, right? Uh, oh. and, and it's especially tough because it's varying province to province, right? British Columbia uh, appears to have the crisis fairly well contained uh, and is starting to reopen. Uh, I, I guess Quebec is also reopening, but they do not appear to really have things as contained as elsewhere. So you could imagine that maybe if Quebec were going to stay shut down a little bit longer, right, you would want the CERB to keep that sharp cutoff. But in BC, you probably want to still have some type of income support, but you want it to be flexible for people going back to work. So you'd want to shift from right a sharp break at $1,000 of earned income to something smooth. So right. that you can still get partial government support even if you only go back at part-time hours. So is this a problem then in terms of COVID-19 policy? And I'll pivot to this right away because this is my next question. Um, I'm just asking about the federal response here. Is the federal response too much of a blanket response? Uh, because as you mentioned, different areas of Canada have different problems, different challenges when it comes to COVID-19 and COVID-19 and the economy, right? And there's different structures to the economy across uh, across different Canadian provinces. So is this a problem that there's a blanket, uh, let's say, CERB? Oh, I mean, 
No, I, I'll, mm. I'll, get, I'll get up there and say no. And certainly up front, the answer is no, right? Uh, I think as an economic historian, put, putting an apples to apples comparison is really difficult. But when we look at the scale of the shock here, the Great Depression really is our best comparator. Uh, and uh, certainly, right, if we, if we went and we removed the welfare state, if we thought that we had the same institutions as when the Great Depression hit, uh, this thing would have been, well, it already was nasty, right? But think of mm -hmm. how much more nasty it would have been. So, you know, are there, are there lots of imperfections in the federal response? For sure. Uh, but am I happy that they went and dumped, I don't know, roughly 10% of GDP uh, into the economy very rapidly? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, am I, and am I happy that they did it in a way that encouraged uh, behavior consistent with public health guidelines? So I think in, in that respect, uh, it was a very smart move. I think it, the order of magnitude of the spend was actually was probably pretty close to right. Uh, so that's not a problem. Uh, and on, on the front end, it worked better in that right, the public health challenges facing the country are, are very, were very similar at the beginning. You know, did, did BC catch the COVID-19 cases uh, earlier than everyone else? Sure, but you know, within a couple of weeks, this was a crisis facing everyone. Now, reopening is gonna be a challenge. Uh, because you know, do the Fed, the Fed, the federal government has the fiscal capacity to offer these programs. Some provinces have that fiscal capacity. You know, BC could afford it, Quebec could afford it, Ontario could probably afford it, but Newfoundland can't afford anything like this. Uh, even mm. Manitoba would would be pushed. Uh, and so, right, well, like as we start to reopen, and provinces are in different positions. Yeah, we want policy variation, province to province, but a whole bunch of provinces actually don't have the fiscal space. Uh, to do anything. Uh, and so we we probably need to, and, and this is really difficult for the federal government, but in an ideal world, uh, imagine that all the provinces uh, saw COVID conditions shifting together. Even then as we recovered, we want to shift the CERB to have a, maybe be a little bit less rich and to phase out. Uh, but now what we would want would be the CERB to remain as it is, where the upgrade right. may add, and then to begin to shift in other provinces. And that is a mm. humongous legislative challenge. Uh, but it's certainly the best practice. So can the provinces do anything more in the face of this crisis? Uh, for example, I'll give you an example, paid sick leave, I don't believe is really well instituted in any province except perhaps Prince Edward Island. Would something like that be uh, something provinces should maybe think about? What else should provinces think about in terms of their individual policy responses? And of course, this will vary quite a bit by province, uh, by province but what are some general principles, I suppose, for provinces to look at? Yeah, uh, so in terms of general principles, right, I would say number one, public health is the most important thing here, right? We've mm -hmm. now seen some really interesting uh, papers out of, the, out of the United States showing that, you know, when, when did people start staying home? When did economic activity decline? It actually wasn't when lockdown orders went in, right? It was, it was when the virus started to spread and it was when the NBA started yeah. uh, to shut down. So we, we know that this is a matter of, of confidence. Uh, and so, right, as a general practice, anything that tackles the public health crisis, uh, I think that in terms of the rebound is going to be number one. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but thinking about particular policies within there, yeah, provinces have really different fiscal capacities, but, you know, let's put the Newfoundlands of the world off to the side and, and think about provinces that have a bit of, a bit of space. Uh, you know, number, we're getting towards the end of this period, uh, but there have been a number of, of gaps in the federal uh, benefit. Uh, you know, they've now closed one for seniors, but that was a meaningful gap for a while. Uh, quits uh, were potentially a bit of a gap. People on income assistance facing uh, big price increases. 
you know, I would say that certainly if I could go back in time, provinces could have done a better job at filling some of the gaps in the expanded welfare state that was created on a temporary basis. Mm -hmm. uh, but now that we're moving on from that, gap filling less important, what's more important is making sure that we can reopen safely and having incentives here. So I, I have paid sick leave basically top of the list. Uh, it's, it's a tough one in that, uh, right, it, it is provincial jurisdiction for most workers. Uh, the feds have jurisdiction over that federal workforce. Uh, but in Canada, there, there really isn't much of an institutional history of doing this. Uh, PEI has uh, one paid sick, uh, paid sick day uh, per year. Quebec has a flexible policy that grants two days that includes, for example, family leave. Uh, but right now, you know, why, why is it so essential? Uh, you know, if you're a worker going in and, and you, don't have a, you don't have a union or your union contract doesn't have paid sick leave, uh, if you stay home because you're sick, even for one day, right, you're getting your pay docked. Yeah, if you get COVID, uh, for example, that would be a terrible thing to, you're kind of forcing people to go to work to get a paycheck, right, and spread the virus, essentially. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we saw, we know that this played a role in those outbreaks of the meatpacking. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think at all times, paid sick leave is probably a pretty good idea. But I think, you know, as a compromise politically, uh, if you just want to do it for the duration of the crisis, I mean, it, it makes a ton of sense. Now, what's, what's the downside? So let's imagine we took kind of the obvious legislative route and provincial governments came in and said, sure, uh, for any worker who's been there for at least two months, uh, you get seven paid, uh, paid sick days per year. Uh, we know where does the burden fall, it falls to business. Uh, and so the reason that we probably haven't seen this introduced anywhere is that the business community, you know, obviously hard pressed, uh, they're in rough shape and they're also going to be fearful that this would be permanent. So you can deal with the permanence concern if you want to by saying this exists for the duration of the crisis. Uh, but then you can, you, you know, for provinces or the federal government can fiscally cover them, right? So the feds have, they have fiscal space even though they have uh, spent uh, extremely generously. Uh, they could easily come in and say your EI premia uh, that we deduct uh, from paychecks, if you offer paid sick leave to your mentor, 60%, you know, they could have some cost share of the actual value of the paid sick leave that the employee takes. So that way you have administrative efficiency in that, right, by having the firm offer this paid sick leave, right, as required for the provincial code, uh, they actually get their paycheck kind of live, uh, right, or they, they get their sick pay live on their paycheck. And then on a semi-frequent basis, they get that remitted to them by, by the federal government or by a province. Mm -hmm. I think that is by far the most elegant fit. Uh, and, you know, I think reasonable policy in regular times, but I think uh, the, the externalities there, right, are, are potentially huge right now. So we're going from the federal government to the provincial government. Just briefly, could you touch on what municipalities can do? The Niagara municipalities where I am, uh, you are in Victoria. What can municipalities do in general? As you know, again, general principles is what we're talking about here. And of course, the sewer will vary considerably. I mean, what Iqaluit up in Nunavut does is going to be very different from what Toronto does, right? But what are some general principles that municipalities can adopt in the face of COVID-19? Right off the bat, and I should have mentioned this under the provinces, municipalities in terms of what they can do are, are constrained by the province, mm -hmm. right? So what are, what are we going to see across the board? Municipal revenues are drying up, uh, especially in, in medium to large cities. Parking revenues are huge. Uh, those have dropped off a cliff. Uh, 
so they are in a constrained fiscal space uh, and they aren't allowed to run deficits typically. Uh, and so we've seen a couple of provinces go and enable uh, municipalities to run deficits in a perfect world, they would get some emergency transfers uh, to help weather the storm from provinces, but you know, deficit spending is, is almost as good as that. So in terms of best practices, num number one, right, we are in a deep recession. Uh, don't lay off people, right? If you want to lay off people for an ideological reason down the line, sure, go do it then. Mm -hmm. uh, don't lay off people now. Right. Uh, right. That that is one of the worst things that I think a municipality could possibly do. Uh, two, right, municipalities actually have really broad powers over public health. Right. It is one. Of, it is one of their uh, most uh, most important areas uh, in terms of the division of powers. So thinking about uh, policy measures that take advantage of of local knowledge. Uh, and, of, and of the fact that, you know, provinces struggle to act at a very small scale. Uh, so in Victoria, you know, because of our climate, uh, there's a long history of having a, a fairly large uh, tent city population, mm -hmm. right? So the municipality made, made the wise decision to very early on uh, institute a bunch of, uh, you know, to find a safe space for those tents to ensure there is distancing to offer uh, safe, safe uh, facilities for their use. And then we was able to work alongside the province uh, to end up getting start getting them into hotel spaces. So that's that's one example. Uh, two, you know, we're seeing a lot of municipalities uh, support distancing measures by repurposing spaces. I think that's a really practical thing that again is outside of the scope of a province to do. Uh, I think there are going to be interesting opportunities for them in in the rebuild period because uh, you know I think the the V-shaped recovery is is unlikely to happen, and I think that we're looking at a at least a one to two year recovery from the recession. And so, you know, there are, there are a lot of uh, kind of uh, nascent uh, policies that are being rolled out by Ottawa that don't necessarily have a lot of meat on the bones, right? So we've seen this, uh, in theory, Ottawa is la launching a national service program. Uh, it actually has no, no firm details other than a dollar allocation and it was mentioned in, the, in their announcement on youth. Uh, municipalities could play a huge role there, right? Uh, you know, uh, either through tapping into those funds or tapping into summer jobs funds from the feds, you know, uh, any municipality with a local university or a local college, right, most of the students are out of work this summer. Uh, if there is work, for example, in the park system, uh, things that can be safely done, right, municipalities can identify those projects and actually turn, right, a federal project that practically they probably are going to struggle to roll out. They could actually get those funds used in a, in a good way on the ground. Uh, so actually kind of reaching out to the other levels of government when they have these, when they have these policy ideas that are, are going to really be a struggle for them to roll out in the time frame uh, they've indicated. Uh, and to be honest, just, just creativity, right? Uh, finding gaps and filling them. Uh, mm. So, you know, I know something that a number of us talked about was the idea of, you know, municipalities who have some control over their transit systems. You have buses that you aren't using. You can use them to deliver groceries because uh, there are still queues in some cities that yeah. get groceries. I think that's a great uh, principle. I think for to adopt not only at the municipal level but even at the provincial or federal level, if possible. Uh, much of your research, Rob, involves the economics of indigenous peoples of North America. So a lot of indigenous communities in Canada may not have public health or medical resources to be able to tackle COVID nineteen. Uh, at the same time, they are isolated communities quite frequently. Uh, how, are they how are they dealing with COVID-19? How's the uh, First Nations uh, and Native and Indigenous peoples of Canada dealing with it? 
And is uh, their relationship with the federal government, with Ottawa, a constraint on their ability to act? Yeah, I mean, so I'll, I'll be upfront. I think right off the bat, it's hard to give you a firm answer uh, mm. because of data challenges. Uh, right. We, we know that there are over 100 cases uh, in Indigenous communities right now, but I don't have any sense as to the amount of testing. Uh, so I don't think we know the real story. Uh, if I, you know, if I had to take an educated guess off of the limited data that we have, it looks like Indigenous communities uh, in Canada are weathering things pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what, what's the big risk factor? And, 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 you know, the federal government has identified this. If there is a major outbreak, right? If we, or if we, you know, either we miss it or if something were to happen in the future, yeah, the public health facilities there are, are not, uh, are, have never been appropriate, uh, and right, it would spiral. It could spiral really badly, uh, you know. So the, I, I think it's telling that the federal government has looked at mobilizing the military to assist here. I think it's, you know, that's a mark on, yeah. on how on how the state has failed in meeting their obligations uh, to Indigenous peoples. Uh, but hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, the geographic remoteness of so many communities uh, is is serving as a safeguard. Certainly out on the West Coast, we've seen a number uh, of First Nations basically, you know, close off the borders. Uh, you know, that, uh, especially where we have a lot of unceded territory here, you know, that, that degree of sovereignty uh, does offer some protection. Uh, now, you know, if we look south of the border, uh, things are, are awful. So we have over 60,000 tests uh, in Indigenous communities in the United States. Uh, there are over 6,000 cases uh, in Indian country in the U.S. Wow. Uh, and there are 3,700 cases in, in the Navajo territory alone. Uh, so it is, especially with the Navajo, it, it has just spiraled. Uh, and they have huge challenges, right? If we, uh, there are huge challenges here. But uh, in the U.S., you know, in that first stimulus or the, the first uh, aid package that was rolled out, uh, none of the dollars have actually gotten to Indigenous communities. Uh, it's all being held up in politics. Uh, a lot of the, you know, the kind of sovereignty uh, and that we kind of, to some degree, I don't want to say take for granted, but has been to some degree accepted here, uh, is being fought in the United States. So a number of nations have tried to, you know, basically close their borders to stop disease spread. Uh, and they've been challenged by state governments, uh, saying that that isn't something that they can do. Uh, and the infrastructure there is is no better than here, right? Yeah. So that uh, it is an awful situation that, uh, you know, it's like it's going really badly. Uh, the, especially in the United States, there's just a myriad of, uh, of also state responses, right? So very mm. much uh, people living on reserve in the U.S. Are, are subject to state response, and we have states that never locked down, reopened really early, uh, yeah. that are constraining their ability to act, that are allowing them to act. So I actually, along with uh, my colleagues, uh, Donna Fair and Maggie Jones, just tossed in uh, uh, a Michael Smith grant uh, to study uh, to study this. Uh, oh, great. Yeah, ideally, you know, we want to figure out, one, how subnational, so right, yeah. how state and provincial decisions impact the spread on, on reserve. But then two, you know, we actually have seen Indigenous governments uh, introduce a number of policies in their own communities, sometimes challenged, sometimes not, uh, and whether or not those have been effective. But this is a big question mark, and, and obviously uh, there is the possibility that things could go extremely badly. Mm, I'm just wondering, how does the United States' as native uh, population, Native Americans, have so many cases, and why particularly the Navajo? Is it population density? What's going on? Here that explains the high number of cases. Yeah, it's a uh, it's entirely uh, unanswered. Yeah. Uh, like I think I think that 
you know, I, I could imagine a million different reasons and I don't want to say anything that isn't accurate. Like, I, I think that one, one thing we know about uh, the outbreak in the United States was that there was a large number of cases that were not documented, right? Yeah. Like the, the virus was clearly circulating for a long time uh, before the United States started to respond. Uh, so that, that plays a role uh, for sure, right? Uh, it was probably in these communities before they had any idea. Uh, and even mm. if you're going to lock down, if the virus is already there, that that's you know that that puts you in a difficult position. Uh, but too more broadly, right? You know, where where do I feel so uncomfortable saying that that uh, uh, we would see the spread uh, more rapidly in the United States and, and in Canada? Access to basic things like plumbing, housing, right? A lot of the things that we take for granted from a public health perspective aren't available uh, to Indigenous people in the United States. Uh, yeah. in many communities. Uh, so that is going to cause a more rapid spread. Uh, as to the Navajo uh, themselves, I don't know. Uh, and I'm hoping to be able to answer that in research going forward. Yeah, I hope you manage to get some answers because that's interesting. Uh, do you think that COVID-19 is going to change the way that we teach economics? Will it transform economics textbooks? And what I mean by that, I'll give you an example. We teach in first year economics comparative advantage as a I guess, reason for why countries should engage in free trade, right? But we often don't talk about the downfalls of free trade. And there are sophisticated critiques of free trade, which I think are coming to the fore in this crisis. For example, uh, should you have all of your PPE equipment made in one country? Should you have vital things like antibiotics made in one country? Uh, because when that country experiences an outbreak and you want to protect yourself against that outbreak, you may not be able to get that PPE, you may not be able to get those antibiotics, you may not be able to get those medicines. In other words, should you put all your eggs in one basket, right, with free trade? Um, do you think it's going to change the way that we teach economics, or should it? Yeah, I mean, will it? I, I actually don't think so. I, I think that, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we are a slow-moving discipline. Uh, yeah. Maybe it will, but I, I, uh, I'd be surprised. Should it? I mean, in some ways, yeah. I, I think that importantly, it should shift our emphasis. So what, like, what am I thinking to right now? Uh, when I teach my policy class, I use a textbook by James Brander on kind of Canadian uh, applied uh, micro policy. And, you know, when, when Brander lays out the reasons for government intervention, you know, we have market failures and redistribution. National security is one of the reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that as economists, right, when we think about national security, we're like, yeah, we're, we're going to put the fighter jets and the tanks over in this corner. And I'm not gonna <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and that's fine. But I, like, I think building on your point, uh, maybe we should take that a little bit more seriously. Yeah. Right? So yeah. do I, I, I often get criticized within, within my own kind of political grouping in that, you know, I'm an economist and I, I like trade. Uh, I think trade is valuable. But right there, I think it's been become pretty clear that there is a national security dimension related to the public health crisis, mm -hmm. and that wasn't taken seriously, right? Uh, when yeah. you talk about the, do, do we does everyone necessarily need their own PPE factory? Maybe, maybe no, but right, do you want to make sure you have the capacity to retool yeah. uh, an existing factory to make your own PPE? Sure, absolutely. Right? So I, yeah, I think that uh, certainly for policymakers, I think there is going to be. Uh, they're going to change how they view this. I think economists might be a little bit slow, but certainly those of us at the intersection of economics and, and public policy, I think, have a responsibility to make sure that that notion of security and of national security is broadened. Uh, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I uh, you know, I, I am curious to see, I, I think that there is this broader backlash happening right now against globalization, right? I, th- I think it predates the crisis. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think the crisis is, is certainly going to cause it to accelerate. You know, we've seen, we've seen politicians across the spectrum uh, saying that we need to bring production home. Like, I was really surprised to see Jason Kenney uh, out, I think, yesterday uh, saying, yeah, we need to stop uh, getting our manufactured goods from China. We need to build them here. Uh, you know, you very much echoed Tom Mulcair uh, circa kind of 2013. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the, on the left, too, I guess this is happening, too, where there's a, is there a populist backlash against globalization in, on the left that you are witnessing right now, even in Canada, let's say? Uh, yeah, I think there's yeah. a populist backlash on the left and the right against globalization. I see. Uh, mm. And, I mean, I... I think that the I think the wrong thing to do would be to look inwards right now, right? I think mm-hmm. I'm I will say that I am particularly worried. Uh, we've had growing xenophobia on the West Coast for a number of years. I think previously linked to the housing crisis out here, and now being amplified uh, uh, by by the virus. Uh, a combination of xenophobia, right, mixed with uh, kind of a close your borders, bring everything in. Gosh, is that a you know we've seen things like that before, and and that makes me extremely uncomfortable. Uh, you know, if we if we want to have if we want to ground this shift in certain values around uh, you know treatment of workers around national security, great, right? We can let's find a let's find a balance, uh, but let's not turn our backs on on trade uh, and on a community, right? A global community that is more integrated than it's ever been before. There you know there are risks from a public health dimension to that, uh, but I also think there are big benefits uh, with respect to you know, respecting your neighbors in the international community with respect to how you engage with people of different backgrounds, uh, races and ethnicities. Uh, I don't, I don't, I, I would be very worried that a sharp economic uh, shift to being a little bit more nationally based might have broader implications uh, mm-hmm. in a way that I would be very uncomfortable with. Right. Okay. So let me ask you a question, Rob. You have a lot of policy experience. What advice would you give? And, you know, this is for my students too, as well as the people who are watching this who might be considering going into economics as a career. Uh, What advice would you have for these people really considering uh, going into grad school, maybe doing a master's degree or a PhD in economics? What should they think about in terms of their planning? Okay, so uh, right off the bat, I went straight undergrad to PhD. I have always regretted it. I think it was a huge mistake. <laughs> really? So I would say, yeah. like, if, you know, if, yeah. if you were going to be uh, the next Nobel Prize winner, sure, go and do it. Yeah, uh, sure. You know, if you think you might do something else, if you think you're going to be a professor, but you're you're not, you know, you're not that once in a generation talent, uh, take your time, get some life experience. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the crisis shifts that a little bit, right? Uh, yeah. It may be the best time to find work, but outside of the crisis, I think it's really important. Uh, like I, there are a million uh, careers I would have, I think I would have been a better economist way if I had experienced for even a year or two. Yeah. And so I would take advantage of that. Uh, so that's one takeaway. Uh, two, I would say, you know, you need to map things out. You want to figure out, and this is always the advice that I give to my students who are considering graduate school. Where do you want to be working in five to 10 years? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're not sure where you want to be working in five to 10 years, what are the two or three positions that you might want to hold? And is a graduate degree in economics consistent with that? Right. Uh, so, you know, and if you it want may to not go, be. 
Yeah, and it may not be, right? Yeah. Yeah, and if, so if you want to be a civil servant, right, or say, say you think you want to be a civil servant or a professor of economics, mm. should you go into a PhD straight out of your undergrad? Probably no, right? Go into a master's, a one-year master's. You'll see what re real research looks like, and that'll inform your choice between the two. Uh, so I think that that's really important, right? You want to you wanna map things out because a PhD is difficult. Uh, it takes a huge chunk of your life. It is, uh, you know, the, the first year uh, is hellish, right? Yeah, uh, it's not it, pleasant. It, even if you do well and you thrive, it's not great. And then the middle is, is pretty fun. And then the end can drag out and also be a little bit unpleasant. Uh, so this is not an easy venture and it is not safe. And they're right. Uh, a lot of people aren't, aren't getting tenure track jobs anymore. Uh, and so you need to be aware mm. of that. Uh, now, and then my last point would be, right, if you're really leaning uh, towards going, uh, like figure out what research you actually want to do. Like one, one thing that I saw a lot of colleagues suffer from uh, when they were doing their, their PhDs, and a lot of these folks have in the end left academia, right, they went with, uh, you know, I, I like the idea of economics, I like talking about economics, and I'm just going to go and find an advisor and I'm going to do whatever they do. Those folks are often really unhappy. Sure, right? yeah. Uh, you want to go in, uh, even if you don't, you want to pick research that you are passionate about, that matters to you, that matters to your community, uh, that you will care about for a large share of your life. Even if you move on, you, you'll always want to be proud and interested in the research you did. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you just tack on to someone, that's probably not going to be the case, right? So uh, advisors, in my, in my experience, advisors love it when people bring their own ideas to the table. Uh, they love that creativity. Mm -hmm. They like the, the chance to kind of toy around with something that is a little bit different than they did. Obviously, yeah. it's better if you're related. Uh, but you, you kind of want to figure that out. Uh, and so, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're thinking about, if you're an undergrad, if you're thinking about going to do a PhD, but you're not sure about the research, really think about taking the time to do a master's uh, and, and find a research agenda there so that when you hop into the PhD, you're, you're ready to go because uh, you're going to do a lot better. Uh, you're going to be happier with, with, with your work. But then also, if you have that, if you have an agenda coming in to do your PhD in economics, uh, you're going to get more respect and more time uh, from the professors in the department because you will be yeah. taking as a researcher. Yeah, this is great advice. And uh, we're getting to the end of our interview. But I'd like to ask you, Rob, where can we find you? You have Twitter, you have a website. And also tell us a little bit about the research that you're doing now. Just a few lines. That would be great. Yeah, so uh, where can you find me? Uh, I use Twitter a fair bit. It's at uh, Rob Gillezo. Uh, so that's R-O-B-G-I-L-L-E-Z-E-A-U. And then my website is rob-shilzo.com. Uh, research that I'm doing nowadays. Uh, I'm doing a, a number of projects on the economic history of Indigenous peoples. Uh, so we're finishing up some work on, on the impact of the uh, near extinction of the bison on Indigenous peoples. Uh, a new work that will have a working paper up actually in about two to three weeks. Uh, we're looking at, uh, myself and Drs. Fair uh, and Jones, uh, we're looking at the impact of the signing of historical treaties uh, mm. between the Crown and Indigenous peoples on long-run outcomes and on traditional activities. Uh, and then we're starting a new project that I'm, I'm really excited about, uh, where we uh, are looking at all of the, basically all of the shipment provisions, all of the annuities uh, provided out of Ottawa, uh, out of the uh, Indian Annual Affairs reports. Mm. So I'm actually, we're digitizing that this summer. Uh, that so is so cool. That's that gonna be a pretty great database. Yeah. Are you so, going to put it out? Are you going to put it online? 
yeah, so I have a I have a strong belief in all of my research uh, that I make data publicly available. So, for example, I, you know, the the I also just applied to, along with uh, Donna and Maggie uh, for a COVID nineteen grant from the Michael mm -hmm. Smith Foundation to look at uh, indigenous and subnational policy responses and how it impacts spread on reserve. And in that case, we would be assembling a data set of all indigenous government policy responses to the virus, and we would be making that publicly available. Well, that is great. I look forward to reading this work and I enjoy your work. I, I love your work, Rob. Uh, thank you for joining us today and I hope you take care and stay safe. You as well. A real pleasure, uh, real pleasure Cornelius. Have a good one. Bye.